0: If you have your Bibles, let's take them out, and we'll open them to the book of Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 16. Continue our study through Genesis 12 through 25. Before reading the next part of Abram's story, though, let's grab the context. If you're a guest, we teach through books of the Bible. We're in this section now, and so when we do this, we always have to reach back and grab the context to know where we are, and so let me do that briefly Our context, reminder, back in Genesis 1 and 2, God reveals his original intention for the world, for all things. And that is the people of God in the place of God with access to the presence of God. And so when you open your Bible, what you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is Adam and Eve in a garden. The people of God in the place of God with access to the presence of God. Genesis chapter 3 tells us they failed to trust God at its core, no pun intended. They did not trust what God had said. Instead, they trusted what the serpent said, the devil. And therefore, what happens in Genesis 3 is the people of God are cast from the place of God and the very presence of God. And the question arises from the text itself, how is God's original intention going to be fulfilled? You know, the Bible progressively reveals this. It gets clearer and clearer the more God reveals of himself. When we come to Genesis 12... We call it a pivotal moment in redemptive history because in this moment, Genesis 12, God shows us how he will fulfill his original intent. You remember what he does, Genesis 12, one to nine. God chooses a man and then he makes a promise to this man, Abram. Abram, through you will come a great nation and you will possess a land forever. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, what you hear in that, I hope, because it's there, is, oh, so through Abram, God will make the people of God a people for himself. In the place of God, blessed with the presence of God forever. We're only, you know, half a dozen chapters into the book of Genesis, and some things are becoming clear. We come to see that the way God is going to relate to man is God is going to make promises. He's going to make promises. And man is going to respond, man, men and women are going to respond to God by the principle of faith, the principle of promise, the principle of faith believing God's promise. Abram is learning to live by promise. Uh, We noted last week that the story itself is gradually revealing, it's getting clear, this underlying structure, uh, what I call it, underlying framework for living by faith. And if you remember last week, I, I, I illustrated it with these two letters. Remember, I had a big, big R on this side for reality, and I had a P on this side for the promise. And, and we interacted with that. And I said, you know, the life of faith is life lived in the tension between our reality and the promise of God. And that biblical faith is not to deny either, but embrace both. To hold our reality, you remember, I held our reality But we also reach out and we hold the promise. This is the life of faith. Now here's the the big point in that. What we come to understand more and more over time is that the promise is the greater reality. Both now, in part, and one day in the future in full. Abram's story is going to continue now in Genesis 14. It's perhaps the strangest chapter in the chapters on Abram. It almost feels out of place. It's a military campaign. This is a little out of place because I want you to know it's the only military campaign in the life of Abram. It describes this great conquest of kings. Um, it, it ends with, with a mystery guest. Comes out of nowhere, so to speak, and steals the final scene. We're going to cover the chapter in two parts. Okay, I'm going to take part one today. And uh, then Rob Sweet will come next week and he will cover the second part, verses 17 through 24. And so I want you to know the message today is, it's a bit of a cliffhanger. The main point of the episode is not today. It's next week. Hope you don't miss that or you can read ahead. Two things we're going to look at in these first 12 or first 16 verses. Just by way of an outline mentally in your head, it's the the conquest of kings and the courage of I'm just giving you two C words to kind of placeholders for these verses. Verses 1 through 12, the conquest of kings. And verses 13 through 16, the courage of faith. One last comment before we read our text. In chapter 13, we noted that Abram, in a a sense, you know, he gave away the land. and, And we learned, and I said it there, that biblical faith... Uh, it, it, it has a there's a sense in which biblical faith is passive don't don't go too far with this there's a sense in which it's passive what do i mean the sense in which you know waiting letting go letting god give there's a sense of passiveness in biblical faith but biblical faith is also active you don't separate them they must remain the same two sides of the same coin of faith Yes, there's a passive nature to biblical faith, but boy, we're going to see it in this section. There's an active part of biblical faith. There's a time to pull out the sword and fight with all your might for that which is right. Both are biblical faith. The challenge we'll address at the end is this. How do we know when to wait? And how do we know when to fight? We'll talk about that in a moment. I'd like you to do this one more time. I know we've been up and down a bit, but would you stand one more time? Uh, We'll honor God's word in this way. Uh, We don't do it all the time. I'm going to ask you to do it today. This is God's word to you and to me on this Lord's day. Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Follow along as I read by the way, when I read this, I, I, you're, you know, I laughed after last service. Someone said, man, you, you didn't say one right. And there's, let me say, there's a lot of names in here. And I'll probably say them different as I'm going through it. The names aren't the most important thing. <laughs> Something else is. Bear with me. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedar Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim that they made war with Bera king of Sodom and with Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shanab king of Adma and Shemeber king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer laomer And the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnam and the Zuzim in Ham and the Emim in Shavakiriatham and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. And conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Hezaz- Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Of Shinar and Ariot, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. That is the conquest of kings. It's the first part of our text. Now the courage of faith. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men. Born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. God, add your blessing to this public reading and now this study. Of your word. May we hear what you have to say and respond in faith. In Christ's name, amen. You can take your seats. Okay, we've read the text. Now let's look at the text. When I say look at it, I thought it would be helpful to actually look at the battlefield. And so Shelby's going to put up a map, and we're simply going to walk through what we just read. And we will see the text graphically. Let me start here. You remember when Rob Sweet took this in Genesis 12, he he reminded us, it's not on this map, but Mesopotamia is up here. The Euphrates River is flowing here. Here's Mesopotamia. These kings of the east come down into the promised land. Now, sometime when we don't know when, those kings of the east, the four kings, came down here and defeated the five kings. We know they did that at some time because the text says for 12 years, they paid tribute to those kings. What does that mean? It means they were under their thumb. It means they sent money to them. It means they sent livestock year after year after year. But then the text says in the 13th year, what did they do? The five kings in the South, what did they do? Enough. <laughs> Let's not send them anymore. Where is Okay, so they do that in the 13th year. What happens in the 14th year? Well, in the 14th year, the kings from Mesopotamia, the five kings come down into the promised land to take what's theirs, and they actually do much more. So when we read the text, you'll note they they come south and they start defeating these places and people all the way to the south and over to Kadesh Barnea. Go ahead and run that slide, Shelby, and you'll see Five kings from the east uh, enter the promised land, coming down, defeating, devastating, wiping out these people as they come through the Transjordan, the eastern side of the Jordan. They go all the way down south, then they turn northwest and go to Kadesh, that's where they are there. Then they turn east and they go over to where we believe Sodom and Gomorrah are. Stop it right there, Shelby. So Sodom and Gomorrah, we think, are in this area. Notice the Valley of Siddim. Remember, that's in our text. So they come to the Valley of Siddim to fight the uh, five southern kings. Now, one of the things I want you to think about is when they came down, by the way, they come down what's called the King's Highway. You know, they could have, right? They could have come right here and done what? And fought. But they don't. They go south. And it's not all just because of geography. Something else is going on in the text. That they would go all the way south. They would go all the way northwest. And they would come back over. And now we're going to fight these kings. Well, they come to the valley of Siddam. Four against five. And they defeat the five kings. They flee. There's tar pits in that area. And when it says they fell into the tar pits, that word can also mean they purposely slid in. They got in the tar pits. Which... Makes sense if the king of Sodom shows up later. It's not like he fell in a tar pit and was swallowed. No, he shows up in the next passage that Rob will pick up next week. Well, the story continues. Go ahead and run the slide, Shelby, if you will. They go from here and head north. Now they're going through the promised land on the west side of the Jordan, all the way up to Dan. Let's stop it right there. Again, when you look at the map, you notice, how about... Why why not go from here and follow the King's Highway back up? Some of it geography, certainly, but I want to suggest there's something else going on. They're going, cutting now through the promised land. We can also say this. Had they not taken Lot, do you think Abram would have ever been in this story? I think not. But they took him. Now, Abram, you'll notice on the map, is right here. It's going to zoom in in a moment, but he's... Here, When Abram hears of this, he musters his 318 and he chases them down. And so Abram's path looks like this from Hebron. Go ahead, Shelby, and run that. He follows them. By the way, this is about 100, maybe 120 miles, you know, that he tracks them down. He gets to Dan, attacks them by night, but he doesn't stop there. What does he do? He pushes them all the way on to Damascus. And you'll note when he pushes them all the way on to Damascus, leave it there for a moment, Shelby, that he's now pushed them out of the promised land. Everybody with me? Like, we just read it. Now, you can kind of look at it and go, okay, now I see it. Now, I've asked the question a couple of times. Why did they take the circuitous route? Um, Why do they you know, just blitzkrieg the whole place if they're just coming down to take care of the five kings. I don't want to suggest they're making a point. And the text is making this point as well. I'm telling you, it's coming at us in strobe lights. When you look at verses 1 through 12 and the conquest of the kings, there's a word repeated 28 times. King, 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 King. I'll stop there, that's only ten. But then when you get to verse thirteen to sixteen, Abram steps on the scene. How many times is the word king used? Zero. Intentional on the author's part? Absolutely. What does he want us to see? He wants us to see that these mighty kings are unstoppable. We're going to come and take what's ours and what's not ours. We're going to get more tribute, you see. And he contrasts, notice in the text itself, the kings. You see what happens when he gets to Abram? Abram the Hebrew. There's kings and there's Abram the Hebrew. And we, you see, feel this tension of that's not fair. (laughs) All these kings and Abram the Hebrew. One of the couples in my community group this week came in and they were a little late because they had a child in a baseball league and they were saying, oh, it's really hard. Really, wasn't so hard. Did they win? Yeah, they won. it's, It's hard to watch because because they got it set up now where our second graders are playing kindergartners. <laughs> it's just brutal. You know, second graders, kindergarteners, killing. we look we read this text the same way. I mean it's like the, the, the kings are the seniors in high school, right? And what are they doing? They're they're playing kindergartners, Abram, the Hebrew. I want you to know when when you look at this map and you look at this activity, this is how it was in that day, okay? We pick up the newspaper and we read about things happening in faraway countries, wars, war, you know. Can I tell you something? In this day, this is normal, normal. Someone's beating up on somebody. A couple of guys got together. Kings got together, side. To they want more land. They take it. If you can't beat them back, you get... See, this is, this was life in this day. You can take the slide down, Shelby. It life in this day and so... You know, a, bit of a question I think that, that that comes out even in this before Abram enters the fray is if this is the promised land, you know, how's Abram gonna get it? Not only how's Abram gonna get it, but the promise is Abram it's yours forever. How's he gonna keep it? It's just him. And there's kings all around, and they'll align, align themselves together and take what they want. Now, this is not a trick question at all. This is on the surface of the text, and, and we need to hang on to this. You know, how is Abram going to do it? You know what? Not surprisingly, Abram is going to get the land and keep the land by trusting the promise of God. That's what happens. Think about the original audience, okay? we got to go, what was the original audience as they were reading this? Well, the original audience actually would, would probably say, we've got to jump ahead 500 years. And the original audience that was reading this text would have been the Israelites. 500 years later, they're dipping their toes in the Jordan River because God has said, cross that river and I'm giving you that land. And just like it says in our text, by the way, as those kings came down, there were people who were mighty and giants. And the people of Israel are now, 500 years later, crossing the Jordan to conquer these mighty people, these giants in that land. And they too would say, how are we going to do it? And what would they read? They would read, Abram, our father, believed the promise conquered I don't want you to miss this because this gets back to what I talked about last week to have the promise is to have God you see that see that's why the reality the greater reality is the promise because you see to have the promise is to have God and so really, when I said this fight's not going to be fair because there's the kings and Abram the Hebrew, what do we really see? This thing's not going to be fair because there is God with Abram the Hebrew and these kings. Five, 10, 50, doesn't matter. Abram has the promise and he has God. Now, I said earlier, his victory is not the climax of the story. It's not the main point. It's not the main lesson. That comes next week. And Rob will talk about it. You can read ahead. For now, I'm just going to make a few observations. Three, in fact. Uh, Let's consider uh, some lessons that we can take from the story and apply to our own faith right now, today. Here's the first thing I want to suggest. Our faith, like Abram's, will ebb between wavering and weighty our whole lives. I'll say it again. Our faith, just like Abram's, it's going to waver between wavering and weighty. And it's going to do that our whole life. I don't want us to forget, you know, in this section we see Abram. It's phenomenal. I mean, this is the stuff like hero stuff, right, Abram? The same Abram just two chapters earlier, finds himself in a position that, you know what? He may die, and so he lies. Sarah, tell him you're my sister. This same Abram, by the way, a few chapters later, is going to do it again. He's going to lie again to save his own life. Abram's faith is growing. It is not perfect. And I say this to us today because there are seasons in our life, your life and mine, when our faith is on life support. It's just been beaten and battered by some realities and you just can't alone. You're normal. This is the life of faith what Abraham's story tells us is that when our faith is beaten and battered, in time God of course can bring and will bring it to a weightiness. But we'll go through those seasons and I say it because I want to remind us that this is a place where it's safe to bring your wimpy faith, your weak faith and we'll sit with you Because ours is just the same. This is a safe place. It's okay here to wonder and to to doubt and to struggle. There have been times in my life, very specific times and seasons, when I did not have the strength to hold on to the promise. See, I did it last week, like, look, you hold the reality, you hold the promise. I didn't do it kind of like, this is easy breezy. I don't mean it that way at all. There have been times when the reality has so crushed me, I didn't have the strength to take the promise. I did not have the strength to hold the promise. And do you know, in those days, there were others in my life, in the community of faith, that held the promise for me. Lisa has held the promise for me, I'm telling you, at different points in my own life. David Arms held the promise for me in very dark days. Bill Wellens has held the promise for me. Michael has held, Michael holds the promise for me truly in ways he does, he's not even aware that he's doing it, but he holds the promise for me in his own faith. We all need others at times who can hold the promise because our faith will waver between weak and weighty our whole life. Let me offer a second lesson, maybe application here. Courageous faith is always a response to God's faithfulness. Courageous faith is always a, it's a response to God's faithfulness. It's not an attempt to secure God's faithfulness. Men and women, we don't earn God's faithfulness. We respond to it. And this is evident in the story of Abram's life in this text and so far. Flip back to chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Notice what happens here. It says, the Lord, when he went to Canaan, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. Lord first, Lord came, picked, chose, I'm gonna do this. So he, Abram, built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. He travels further into the promised land, verse 8. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. The first thing Abram did as he passed through the land, as he came into that land, is that he built an altar. So important. He didn't build the altar in order to get to God. Did he? God chose him. The promise came to him. And then he responded. At the altar. Look at chapter 13 verse 4. It says. Abram went to the place of the altar. Which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called On the name of the Lord, when Abram failed in Egypt, he, I didn't talk about this last week for time's sake, but I want you to know when he went back, remember he failed in Egypt, when he went back north, he didn't meander. I'm telling you, he made a beeline. (laughs) To where? To the place where he met the Lord. By the way, when he came out of Egypt, having failed, God still blessed him, didn't he? He came out with more. He headed straight to the altar. Look at chapter 13, verse 18. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Please note the previous verse. God the Father, after after he separated Lot from Abram, said... Let me tell you more about what I'm going to do for you. Let me get very specific on what I'm going to do for you. You see, God made God reaffirmed the promise. And then what does Abraham do? In response, he builds the altar and he worships. And then in chapter 14, verse 13, then a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, now he was living by the oaks of Mamre. You know what? The point is not remember the trees. The point is he was at the altar still in communion with his father, worshiping. God reveals himself to Abram as faithful. Abram responds to God's faithfulness with worship. We don't want to get those out of order. God always makes the first move and we respond in worship. And when I say worship, it's not just, hey, we sing these songs. You say, no, you respond with a life in which you're communing with God. Now, the question I said that arose earlier in the text is, uh, you know, how, how do we how do I know when how do I know when faith is passive in the sense of wait, be still? How do I know when faith is active? Pick up the sword. Go. <laughs> how do we? No, I can't tell you, but God can and he does as we walk in communion with him, as we trust him. As we worship him, lifestyle of worship, as we are in his word and by his spirit and with his people, God will tell you, I can't, he can and does. Stand still, pick up the sword. This is the life of faith. It's a relationship with God. And he speaks and he leads. Courageous faith. Is always a response to God's faithfulness, not an attempt to secure it. And then thirdly, may we not substitute having the promise of God and trusting it. I'll say it again. May we not substitute having the promise of God and trusting the promise of God. There is a big difference between these two. They're not the same, and they don't produce the same result. I've mentioned before. I think every—it's usually every every year over the last decade. My family and I would go to a family camp, and we go to these family camps. And uh, when my kids were little, I did this, and I'll still do this. I'll I'll take this one day when there's these family activities, and uh, we will do um, the—I'll do the zip line with my daughters. Right? You know what the zip everybody know what the zip line is, right? You're up 50, 60 feet, you climb the tower, and then you're gonna get on this line and you're gonna zip down, right? Well, when you go on the zip line, of course, they have a harness. And I'm telling you, man, when you put this thing on, it's like here, it's here, it's here, it's like it's all over you, just strapped in. And then it's got this you know, this cable thing that runs up that they'll clip to the line. You get to the top of the tower. You got the line that goes down. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll say, now you need to sit down right here on the edge. I mean, it's 50 feet down, but you sit on the edge, you know. When you sit on the edge, you got this, you're already strapped in. They've tested it all. It's all good. They snap you onto the wire. And so you're sitting here, you know, and you got your child over there on the other one. You're sitting here. You, you have the harness. But if you only have the harness but you don't trust the harness. You know what happens? You sit here long enough and it happens, you know, feel no shame. No one feels shame on this. You have the harness, you sit here and it's, you can't do it. And so some people, again, no shame, you know, I I can't do it. You get up, you take off the harness and you walk the stairs, you know, down. Uh, But if you have the harness and you trust the harness, what do you do? You sit, what, what do you do? You go off. <laughs> you know, and you're flying, you know, down this zip line. Just a huge difference, you know? I mean, between having, let me say this to everyone in the room. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you have the promise. Can, can I say this? To everyone who's placed their faith in Christ, There's no one in the room that has more promises than you do. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. And so, you know, this is the Christian life. This is okay. Again, there's no shame in this. We're all at different places in our growth some of us, you know, are at a place where we, we, we're trusting the promise and some of us are in a place where we're not able to trust it yet. That's okay. That's why we gather together. So I can look at you and I can say to you, I've been there and I've trusted this promise. You can do it. You see, I encourage you to trust the promise. That's the Christian life. We do it all together. But we dare not substitute having the promise and trusting the promise. Abram had the promise and, you know, here's the most important thing in the text, at least our part of the text. He trusted the promise. Connect these dots. No earthly power is greater than the person who trusts the promise of God. Why? Because when you have the promise You have God. You have God, and you have the promise. You see. So what? So what do we do with this? Let's let's pause. I don't know where you're at today. Is God inviting you to let go of something? Let go and wait. Is He inviting you to pick up the sword and fight? Maybe both. As we think about application, I would be remiss if I did not remind us. That what this requires is impossible. You know, some of us sit here and it's okay. You, go, I can't do it. I can't believe it. I, that's, that's normal. But let me remind you that in this life of faith, we're in good company. You do know that Jesus lived by faith. No, no, he was on autopilot. No, he wasn't. Fully God, fully man. Jesus had to live by faith. He believed the promises of his father. Hebrews 12.2, great cloud of witnesses, reminds us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that tell us? That Jesus had his reality, the cross. But he also had his promise, the joy, set before him. But I'm going to tell you, he had to, go through his, he had to go through the cross, didn't he? But he held on to the promise. Oh, what, Jesus, what you and I can't do when it comes to faith, I want you to know Jesus has done on our behalf. So whatever our application you see in faith, Whether it's letting go or or courageously fighting, you see. It's only by Christ who lives in us that we do it. This life of faith is a life of dependence on Christ to reproduce his life in and through us by his spirit. So would you take a moment right now, and I'm just going to ask you to think about it. And I'm going to ask you to talk to Christ, to trust Christ. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to depend on the Spirit's power, Christ in us. What is he inviting you to do? Let go? Some measure of faith, some challenge in your life? Or is he inviting you to pick up the sword? He's inviting you to do both. What does by faith in your life look like right now? Would you think about that for a moment? Let's stand together. I'm going to send you out a little different. There's time. Don't rush out of the room. I'm going to ask you to go slowly, if you will, because I'm going to ask you to do something. And every time I invite you to do something, you guys know this well enough. You don't have to. It's all volunteer, right? Um, I said that this is a safe place, but also said it's not a comfortable place. You know, to, to live in the Christian life is, is steps of faith. I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith this morning. And it would be this. Before you leave, I want to invite you to turn to someone nearby. Rather than, you know, welcome to fellowship, glad you're here. I'm going to ask you to turn to someone, you know, before you hit the doors. Just could be your spouse, a friend, someone behind you. But turn to them and I want you to, I want you to offer to them and you might say to them, I think God's inviting me to let go. Or you might turn to someone and just go, I, I, I think he's, you don't have to say what it is, just I think he's calling me to pick up the sword. Or you might turn to someone and, and you literally, you'd say to them, I think it's a little of both. And then there's a bunch of us in the room. Honestly, you can turn to someone and say, I'm not sure. <laughs> That's Okay. But I want to invite you to state that, to just say it to someone within the community of faith before you step out the doors. God bless.